0: Good morning. morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 6.13. And as you're doing that, three weeks ago I asked you to imagine that you were a patient in the hospital. This morning I'd like you to imagine that you're still in the hospital. So you've been in the hospital now for over three weeks. I'm sorry about that. But on the bright side, that really good looking guy from physical therapy is coming in every morning, still working with you. 7 a.m., I come in, get you up. We walk out into the hallway, finally get you to a chair, and you sit down, and you go right into the same routine that you've been going into the last three weeks. You go into talking about the pain and how bad it hurts. And then you go into talking about, I can't wait for the pain to be over. I can't wait to get out of the hospital. And again, I'm not saying this insensitively, but I don't want to talk about that because that's not going to help you. What my focus is is to get, to get you to encouragement of you keep continuing in the exercises. So there's two approaches that I can go about doing that, of encouraging you to do the exercises. One approach may sound like if you don't exercise, you're only going to get weaker and weaker. And then when you want to get out of bed, you're going to try, but you're going to be too weak. You're not going to have the strength to do it, and you're going to fall, which means you're going to break your hip. And then when you break your hip, you're not going to be able to get out of bed, which means you're going to get pneumonia, and then you're going to die. (laughs) Well, it's a very direct approach, I understand. But there's times where I need to give that approach. There's times when patients have this mentality where they need somebody to be in their face and to tell them, if you do not move, you're going to die. The other approach I could take, though, would be sitting down next to you and saying, think back three weeks ago. When we first started working together, you were only able to get 30 feet outside the room, and I had to help you most of the way, and it hurt. But this morning, you just walked 200 feet, and I know the pain is still the same, but look at how much progress you've made over the last three weeks. Keep doing the exercises. Do you see the difference in the two approaches there? So in the same way, Christian, the Hebrews author is exhorting us to get out of our sluggishness, To continue holding on to the faith to stay faithful to God and there's two approaches that one could take with this one approach may sound like and look like imagine you're walking down the middle of a pier and you're hanging on to God's hand and there's water coming up the sides of the pier and if you fall away from God you're gonna get swept out by the water and you're gonna die that's the approach we had last week And that approach, as Dan had said, was to warn us or to scare us into maturity. I was sitting over there last week, and really all I was thinking was, Dan, you're scaring me just with your hand movements. As long as you never do something like this again, I'll mature. But with that said, the other approach that we could take would be more of an assurance, more of an encouragement approach. And that's the one we'll take this week. And so as we go through our text, what I want you to be thinking in your head is, how often do I look back and see God's faithfulness to me? How often do I look back and see God's faithfulness to me? Let's read Hebrews six thirteen. This is the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So last week, Dan had left us off with the Hebrews author exhorting us to get out of our sluggishness, to not be lazy, exhorting us to see examples of patient faith and patient um, faith and to imitate those people. And this week, he starts off in 13 through 15 by giving us an example of that, and that in Abraham's life. Abraham's patient faith is what we want to look at. And the Hebrews author in verse 13 and 14 goes into Genesis 22. That's the point that he pulls out of Abraham's life, the promise that God makes to Abraham. But we want to remember the Hebrews author and his readers know the Old Testament, their scripture better than what we know the Old Testament. So we want to look all the way back to Genesis 12 because that's the first time that God comes to Abraham and makes this promise of, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when we look back on Abraham's life starting in Genesis 12 to go to Genesis 22, understand the Hebrews author is not saying Abraham had a perfect life, but he's pointing towards a patient life. In looking at this, we want to look at when has God been faithful to Abraham's life and how did Abraham respond in faith? So when looking at Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. He says, leave your country, leave your kinsmen, go to a land that I tell you to go, and there I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham responds in faith. He goes. In Genesis 15, we see God coming to Abram in a vision, and he says, hey, about that multiplication promise that I made you, I haven't forgotten it. I'm going to fulfill it. And Abram's like, Yeah about that promise you said you were going to multiply me but is that going to come out of my direct line or is it going to come out of my household because i don't have anybody out of my direct line yet and god says assures him and says no it'll come out of your direct line it's not going to come out of your household and abram believes him on faith in that and romans tells us that that it's counted as righteousness to him in genesis 17 god comes to abram again and says hey i haven't forgotten about that promise as a matter of fact i'm going to show you a sign and genesis 17 has always been ironic because God comes to Abram and he extends his name to him, Abram to Abraham, but then he cuts other parts off. Genesis 21, though, we see the birth of Isaac. So Isaac is born in Genesis 21, 25 years after Genesis 12. So after the original promise that God makes to Abraham, that he will multiply him, that he will bless him, we finally see the initial fulfillment of this promise in the birth of Isaac. And then, in Genesis 22, where the Hebrew's author directly points to, we see God coming to Abraham and saying, Give Isaac back to me. I want you to sacrifice Isaac back to me. That thing you were waiting for, that promise you were waiting for, for 25 years, I want you to give him back to me. And Abraham responds in faith. So again, Genesis 12, we see him leave his country. We see him leave his kinsmen. We see him take God at his word. In Genesis 15 Genesis 17 at 99 years old he circumcises himself and in Genesis 22 he's willing to give his son Isaac back to God and the first question we think of is how how is he able to do that and we go into the certainty of God's promise is what Abraham understands And I didn't refer to the handout. I'm sorry about that. Dan's already marked me down for it. But looking at your handout, verses 13 through 15, we see the example. So the example of Abraham's life that God demonstrates to us of him fulfilling his promise. And in 16 through 18, we can see the certainty of God fulfilling his promise. Sorry, the handout's didn't even... Okay, the handout's again a handout. I'll get marked down for that too. Don't worry. Dan's got a lot that he's already writing down here. So in the handout, verses 13 through 15, we see the example in Abraham's life of God fulfilling his promise. In 16 through 18, we see the certainty of God fulfilling his promise here. Looking down at verses 13 through 18, I want us to look for two words, promise and oath, because the Hebrew's author uses those two words distinctively, promise and oath. And when you come across the word swear or sworn, that's another word for oath. So looking down real quick at verse 13, we see promise. At the end of it, we see swear, swore. So that's an oath. Verse 14 is a whole promise in and of itself. Verse 15, we see promise at the end of it. 16, we see swear. We see oath in there as well. 17, we see promise and we see oath at the end. And 18... We don't see either of those two things, but like I said, verses 13 through 17, we see Hebrew's author using the words promise and oath, and he uses them distinctively. Now, what's the difference between a promise and an oath? Because in the English language, we use them interchangeably, so much so that if you look in the English dictionary called Google and you type in what is an oath, the definition that comes back is a solemn promise. So, the word promise is in the definition of oath. That's how much we use them interchangeably. But think about being in the court of law. When you give your testimony, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, is a promise. I swear, so help me God, is an oath. So, looking at Genesis 22, when God comes to Abraham, what ends up happening is Abraham's ready to sacrifice Isaac. He got the knife right up, and the angel of the Lord stops him and says, Thus says the Lord, By myself I have sworn, because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and multiply you. So the thing we look at here is that in Genesis 12:15 and 17, and then in 22, God makes him a promise. The difference, though, here in 22 is that God places an oath on top of that promise as well. He swears on his own name. And two things that we have with that. What's the meaning of that? That God makes an oath on top of the promise? And then why does God wait until Genesis 22 to give the oath? So the first thing of what's the meaning of it? What's the significance of the oath being placed on top of the promise? This one we're going to kind of go through quickly because I think we all have at least a foundation of this already. God's the creator. Nobody created him. God has authority over all things. Nobody has authority over God, and nobody is outside of God's authority with that said. So if God's the creator, he has authority over all things, there's nobody greater than God, and there's nothing greater than God. So if God swears on his own name, what he's saying is it's the ultimate security to fulfilling this promise. There's no way that God is going to go back on this. There's no way that the promise will not be fulfilled. If God places an oath by swearing on his own name, God will fulfill the promise. Now we look at why does the oath come in Genesis 22. And one reason why for that is because Abram didn't necessarily need the oath. Not necessarily in the sense that Abram already believed the promise. Abraham already responded in faith by leaving his country, leaving his kinsmen. He already responded in faith by believing on God's word. He already responded by circumcising himself. And he already responded in faith because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. So the oath in that sense was not necessarily for Abraham. The oath is for brother and sister in Christ, you and me. It's for the heirs of the promise. The oath is for that we would know and have encouragement that God will not fall back on his promise, that it will be fulfilled. And one thing, if you're reading this just at first glance, as I was, would be to think, okay, well, the Hebrew's author is looking at how we don't fulfill our promises, or we can't hold our oaths, but God does. And while that's true, that in the Bible it does point to our sins many times and then points to Jesus, that's not exactly the approach the Hebrew's author is taking here. Because remember, this is an assurance passage. This is for encouragement here. What the Hebrews author is doing here is he's magnifying the fact that God does not lie. If God has placed an oath and he has made a promise, he's not going to change either of those two things. He's not going to go back on either of those two things. This is for our assurance. It's for our encouragement that we can hold fast to the hope and we should hold fast to the hope because God is not lying to us. He's not going to go back on the oath. He's not going to go back on the promise. We can know for certain that God will fulfill his promise. At the beginning, I'd asked you, how often do you look back and see God's faithfulness in your life? And now that we've let that marinate for a little bit, I'd like to ask, how do you see your response? How are you responding when you look back on your life and see God being faithful to you? because we can look back and we can see God and we can even see our own sin and we can know that Jesus is a savior. But if you've actually never responded in faith, then are you who you think you are? Are you actually a child of God? Abraham was called to leave his country. He was called to leave his kinsmen and he responded in faith in that way. And we keep using the word faith like this, but let me just clarify a little bit of what faith really means. So faith isn't necessarily a, I think there's a wind, I feel the wind, so I have faith that there is wind. That's not necessarily faith. Faith in the biblical term is full reliance on God, fully relying that God has called me out of the world, that he has set me apart, and fully relying on the fact that God fulfilling his promise is going to be the thing that sets me apart from the world. It's nothing that I have done, nothing that I could ever do that could set me apart, but it's only in what God has done. That's what we want to be thinking about as far as how has our response been to His faithfulness. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking kind of to yourself that you're right there. That right now you're going through a deep trial, you're going through a deep struggle. You're wrestling with a sin right now. You're going through a dry season. Whatever it may be, and for however long it may be, your stress, your anxiety might be through the roof right now. And you're thinking, I am under such a long dry season, and it doesn't feel like I'm ever going to get out of it. You've been sitting here the last three weeks, and you've heard Dan and me say, go before the throne of God when you're in trouble. You've heard us say, don't fall away from God. Keep holding on to His hand. You've heard me say, imitate the example of patients' faith you'll receive the promise and you're sitting here thinking I'm trying I'm trying to hold fast I'm trying to stay faithful but right now the pain is really bad right now I wish that it would just be over with I wish that the trial would end how am I supposed to hold fast to the hope Think back three weeks ago, or even three years ago, or even 30 years ago. The trial, the struggle, the dry season you're in right now, could you have gone through it back then? Because every child of God should be able to say, no. There's no way what I'm going through right now could I have suffered through back then. Because I didn't have the faith back then. I didn't have the amount of faith back then to be able to go through the struggle now that I'm going through look back on your life and see the progression that God has made in your reliance on him and just understand that very fact that it's God who has done that because God is faithful to his promises he is the one who's growing in your faith you think back and you ask yourself how much work or how much trying did I do to actually wipe the scales from my eyes How much did I actually do to pull myself out of the darkness, to see God for who he really is? And we all, genuine children of God, come to this conclusion that I did absolutely nothing. I didn't do a single thing. God did everything. Because God is faithful to his promises, I am the beneficiary of that. Because God placed Jesus' righteousness on me, I can hold fast to the hope. The term in verse 17 at the end of it, hold fast to the hope. Hold fast is the same term he uses in chapter 4. Before you go to the throne of God, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to the confession that you're not there at the throne because of your own good merit. You're there because God has placed Jesus' righteousness on you. So you feel in that dry season, you feel like you're on that downward slope of spiritual just dissension. Remember, God is faithful to His promise. Know for certain that God is faithful to His promise. Look back on your life and see the example—not just in the, throughout the whole Bible, but see the example in your own life. And then remember that you can turn and joy and be encouraged that God will be faithful to His promise and know from that for certainty. This leads us right into our next, our third point, with. The core certainty God will fulfill his promise. And that's supposed to be the anchor of certainty. That, yes, that's supposed to be the anchor of certainty God will fulfill his promise. I've been in this country for 32 years. English is still not my strong suit speaking <laughs> or writing. Um, some of you came up to me afterwards and you had said, I had no idea that you could speak for 30, 35 minutes. And if we're being completely honest, some of you were sitting there thinking, I had no idea he could speak English. Um, the anchor of God's certainty that God will fulfill his promise. When we look at verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The Hebrews author is throwing us right back to chapter four, three weeks ago, talking about when you go before the throne of God, you know that you are there, not in your own merit, but because of what Jesus has done for you and because God has placed Jesus' righteousness on you. And he's bringing us right back to that. How can you hang on to the hope? How can you stay holding on to God's hand and not fall off the pier? Because Jesus is your sure and steady anchor. This is Jesus who has raised above the heavens, He is ascended there, and he is in the presence of God because he is holy as God is holy. He is there when you go with your troubles interceding for us because he is our great high priest. And he sits at the right hand of God because he is of the order of Melchizedek, the kingly high priest. And he is there forever. Nobody else is going to be appointed to that spot because Jesus is completely sufficient in that. That's Jesus who is our sure and steady anchor. I had had a great idea for this illustration. That this podium, because of all the walking I did back and forth three weeks ago, this lesson I was going to just hang on to the podium the whole time. And when I got to this point in the lesson, I was going to be like, just like the podium has been anchoring me down, Jesus anchors your life down. I was like, that was going to be great. But it didn't work, because obviously, yeah. But no... When the world, when Satan, when our own flesh wants us to fall away, when it wants us to lose faith, to let go of God's hand, to fall off into the pier, know that Jesus is your sure and steady anchor. Know that it's not in anything that you need to do or you need to try harder, but it's in the full faith, the full reliance that God has placed Jesus' righteousness on you and he is the one who did all of the work for it. Dan is going to go over Mechizedek in next week because you see Melchizedek there. I'll bring that up one more time. Dan is going to go over Melchizedek next week. It's going to be great. You want to be here. People don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek, but in Hebrews, it seems like the Hebrews author thinks he gets mentioned 500 times in the Old Testament. It's not true. It's only two times. Mark your calendar. Next week, Dan's going to teach on Melchizedek. It's going to be great. You want to be here. In two weeks, Dan is going to teach on Melchizedek Two weeks, actually. <laughs> I'm not going to promise you. I'm not going to put an oath on that. But in two weeks, Dan raised two fingers up and said, it's going to be in two weeks. So you can take him for his word. Don't take me for my word on it. Okay, back to the lesson. <clears throat> Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham. He places the oath on top of the promise. And I had said, "It's not the oath is not necessarily for Abraham in the sense that Abraham has already believed God's promise. But it is in the sense for Abraham, because understand, Isaac's birth was only the initial fulfillment of the promise. Abraham, while he was alive, only saw Isaac and Jacob being born. He didn't see the multitude of stars. He didn't see the sand on the seashore being born. We're the beneficiaries of that as children of God, but Abraham's not alive to see that. So the oath was necessarily for Abraham in the sense that he was not going to see the full fulfillment of the promise. And with that said, same thing for us, Christian. Do you understand that we only realize the initial fulfillment of the promise? We can know that Jesus is there when we go before the throne. But do you realize we're not going to see Jesus until after the physical death the christian life is not just a three weeks here three weeks there i'm suffering and then i get a vacation from it the christian life is the whole life of suffering that's what christ calls us to see from this text the encouragement that the hebrews author is giving us that we should hold fast to the hope until the very end because death comes for us And probably the ultimate suffering, the ultimate test for a Christian is knowing that in your last days, your flesh wants to hang on to life. Satan wants you to be tempted to hang on, and the world wants you to hang on. But know for certain that that's when the test will be the worst. Know for certain that God has placed this oath on top of the promise that after death, Not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus has gone to death as a forerunner. And it was in his reverence that he was raised, that we share in that victory. I don't know if we sit on that enough. Just to understand and realize that, yes, we will experience the physical death before seeing Jesus. That, yes, the whole Christian life, not just chunks of it, but the whole Christian life is on suffering. And how amazing this passage is to know the certainty that God will fulfill his promise no matter what suffering we have. We have the example in Abraham. We have the promise and the oath. And we have Jesus as our sure and steady anchor. I don't have a lot of time to go into this next part. I understand that. So with what I'm about to say, I'll preface it and say if you're offended by it, or if you have misunderstandings, or if you're confused by it, I just ask that you come and speak to me afterwards so that I could flesh it out or explain it a little bit more. But with that said, the American dream is a false hope. I mean, the American dream is something that our culture and our own flesh wants to hang on to. Because the American dream says, work hard right now, make a lot of money, and young man, put that money aside right now. Because when you're in your mid-50s or you're getting close to retirement, you're going to wish you had that money. The American dream is what says, don't have faith that God will provide for you. And let me parcel this out to say, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to put money aside. I'm not saying that it's good to be a good steward of your finances. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we struggle, especially in America, we struggle with pulling ourselves away from these false hopes that God is not going to provide for us, or that he's not going to provide the comfort that we expect or want to have. And that's a false hope. That's something we struggle and suffer from. We're not beating around the bush here. I'm not trying to condemn us or to even to convict us in it. I'm just saying we're not a church in Haiti where the country's on fire, We're not in a country where they've outlawed Christianity. We don't suffer in that way that typically people think of suffering. What we suffer with is trying to pull ourselves away from false hopes. And I say this again as an assurance that the Hebrew's author is encouraging us to remain faithful, to keep holding on to God's hand. Because we don't just have it here in the Bible to see. And we don't just have it as god's oath and god's promise god has given us as a church body examples of this in our very own congregation you think about the different derfers they left for japan because god called them to go to japan them being in their 30s they said it's okay we're going to forget about the job that joel has we're going to forget about putting money in 401k because god has been faithful to us and he has been faithful to his promise the only reason why they were able to go was because they had that faith that he had given them to go to Japan. And they're living on, what, 20,000 a year right now? For two years? Suffering and struggling through trying to be pastor of a church? And you could debate that, well, Joel and Misty are in their 30s. If you're going to take a risk like that, you take it when you're young, right? You could debate that, and I would disagree with you, but we're not going to debate it right now because church family, we've had two folds of this blessing here. I mean, you think about Pastor Cliff. He's 56 years old. Denise is 42. And I don't hear either of them... I don't hear either of them saying, we need to look at our portfolio. We need to look at how our stocks are doing. I hear them saying, God's called us to move two times now in the last two years, to be closer to a church. And I hear them saying, in faith, they're stepping out to do that. I don't hear Pastor Cliff saying, I need to work overtime right now so that maybe I could retire a year early. I hear him knowing that God is calling him to change jobs for the third time in, what, five years now? He's in his mid-50s. And the world would look at that and say, you're going to change careers in your mid-50s? Are you insane? Are you crazy? And you're going to go into the pastoral ministry? Because everybody knows pastors don't make a lot of money. Associate pastors don't make any more. And yet, the pastoral world, they see pastors in their 50s and 60s and they label them as workhorses because their kids are out of the house. Pastors in their 50s and 60s, have learned obedience through suffering. They understand what it's like to obey God through suffering. And they still have the strength to pass that wisdom down to the next generation. They still have the strength and endurance to be able to carry the good deposit and hand it off to the next generation. Everybody knows pastors don't retire at age 65. They retire when God calls them home. And I hear Pastor Cliff saying, that's what I'm going to go do. If God gives him all 14 years of that, he's going to give all of his strength, all of his endurance. And I'm not saying this to just put them on the spot or anything. I'm glorifying God that we have this example here. I mean, do you see this church family? We have this example of God saying to the younger generation, to the whole church, you can look back on your life and you can see God being completely faithful to his promise. And it's nothing in you, but you can know with faith that if God calls you to do something, you can do it, knowing he will not forget you, knowing he will not go back on his promise. I haven't talked with many of you about the Boudemore's leaving, so I don't know how many of you feel. Carmel and I praise God, though. We thank you for the example that you guys are setting. We thank you that you are showing what it looks like when Christians stand firm holding fast to the hope knowing that God has been faithful throughout your life. I promise that I will help you move the blue couch (laughs) but I'm not going to touch the piano. (laughs) You can get Johnny Pega to move the piano. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, We thank you that your word has been spoken. We praise you and only you. We ask that you be with our brother Jeff as he speaks through Philippians. We ask that you be with us this morning and with the church body. Father, what an emotional service it will be. But we lift our hands in praise to you that you have given us this example to the Diffendurfers, to the Buttermores, of what it looks like when people stand firm Not in their own self, but knowing for certain that you will fulfill your promise. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.